Parental leave double dipping, how to handle abuse complaints in school, maintaining independence when unis intersect with industry, and looking forward to election day in America. Hello and welcome to Talking Eds, APN Educational Media's weekly review podcast, comprising the team behind Early Learning Review, Education Review, and Campus Review. I'm Patrick Avenal, and I'm the news editor for these sites. We missed a few weeks of uh, Talking Eds because we were at Protect Ed, the conference that I've been promoting at the start of each issue of each edition of Talking Eds. Now, if you want to get a catch up on what you missed at Protect Ed, I've put up some news stories on educationreview.com.au. You can check out some stories about risk assessment, record keeping, cyber safety, and privacy minefields in the primary and high school environments at educationreview.com.au. That's uh, for anyone wanting to catch up on Protect Ed. And I'm joined now by Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Patrick. How are you going? I'm genuinely good. Thank That's you very right. much. How are you? I'm really well. And uh, it's, it's lovely. It's um, hard, low 30s in Sydney today. The sun is shining. It's, uh, I really feel as though perhaps summer officially started today. I feel like that might be so. And James, how are you going? You're the editor of Education Review and Campus Review. Yeah, I am, and I wish I was outside. You wish you were outside. I certainly hope whatever climb you're listening to, uh, this podcast in is mirroring Sydney's magnificent day. And uh, speaking of uh, good news, part one, Lauren, is good news for the George Costanzas of the world because double dipping is set to be allowed. Who do we have to thank slash blame for this? I never realised double dipping wasn't allowed... But apparently the government wanted to get rid of it. And in this sense, we're talking about, of course, not hummus or tzatziki, but paid parental leave. So what the government wanted to do was to curb their payments to new parents if that parent was getting a payment from their employer. So essentially, they thought that parents who were getting both payments were double dipping. But this has been met with a lot of backlash. And the Nick Xenophon party was the deciding factor as to whether this legislation would go through. And they have just indicated that they won't support it. So this means that parents can get um, $12,000 from the government as well as whatever their employer decides to give them. So Nick Xenophon, uh, the most probably the sort of the, the central or left wing populist uh, senator or leader of a Senate team now, He's the one we've got to thank. And it sort of doesn't really mesh with the end of the age of entitlement, does it? I feel as though the age of entitlement is continuing on apace with some of these decisions. Yeah, it looks like there are a lot of popular votes going on in Parliament (laughs) at the moment that maybe reflect the fact that there are these minority parties that have a lot of power and want to retain that power. But at the end of the day, this is good news for parents And a lot of people, such as Lynn Craig, who I spoke to, who's the director of the Social Policy Research Centre at UNSW, really supports this too, because what the government wanted to do is take that money that they would save from not giving it to parents and give it to some other parents who might not be getting that money for whatever reason. And um, Lynn Craig thinks that this isn't a solid rationale because you shouldn't take from some to give to others. Is there any data available on sort of what sort of uh, workers or what sort of socioeconomic groups are most likely to benefit from from the double dipping? Is it just more money going to people who already have enough of it or is it going to help people perhaps climb up the rungs? Well, that's what the government's saying. They're saying that high income earners are benefiting most from this because 
the cap for paid parental leave payments is 150,000. So they say someone on 140,000 can still receive this double dip payment. But Lynn Craig, for instance, disagrees. She said this will affect mostly low and medium income earners because not everyone is getting $140,000 a year. And actually, um, in terms of internationally, we're one of the stingiest countries when it comes to paid parental leave. We're only above the US who gives zero paid parental leave. James, what are your thoughts on this? Um, when it comes to paid parental leave, I think we should stop seeing it as a welfare handout and basically as a mechanism to... So, so parents can raise, raise, have, finance, have the financial capability to raise their children properly and also to, and also to get back to work so they can yeah, get back into the workforce while being able to parent their child. And also that, but it's not all the sole responsibility of paid parental leave. That comes down to flexible workforce conditions and, and stuff like that, which there are developments in. But I think um, categorising it as double dipping isn't useful. In my opinion, it's, it's a very loaded term. Oh, it's there. loaded. It, 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 you're implying it's implying your welfare rort if you do it. Yeah, and yeah. It's a, it, there's a there's a dog whistle there to people who would like to see you know the end of all government handouts and some sort of you know libertarian capitalist free state where all the government does is provide protection and everyone else has to fend for themselves, which is a bit impractical when then we expect half of the population to leave work in order to raise the next generation. Part two, James. The Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child sex Sexual Abuse has now been going on for three and a half years. Its pervasiveness means it has almost become part of the middle ground of our everyday lives. The big news penetrates the mainstream while the day-to-day -day happenings have become more quotidian. Now, into this sort of uh, media realm, several youngsters are having their say about the issue. Tell us more. The Royal Commission is hosting a series of um, research symposiums where they've commissioned several research into how to prevent child sex abuse, what we can do about it, all that sort of stuff. And this was the first of the series, and, and there were two studies presented. Um, one was done by a pair of researchers from, from Australian Catholic University, and they, and they presented a panel of young people who were involved in this. And these young people, um, Ben, Julia, Elizabeth, Claire and Jamesy, all gave their thoughts on how to prevent child sexual abuse happening in the future. And the big, the big thing stemmed from, back from the old norm, where children were seen, not heard. And basically, what they talked about is that we need to end this norm so that children's voices are heard. And if they if they're warning that that some some a staff member in, in a school or something like that, maybe per, maybe a, a, an abuse perpetrator, something needs to be done about it at least. I'm going to read out one of the suggestions. This is from Julia. She's aged 18. It's important to communicate with young people everywhere, but I think it's especially important in the out of home care sector, which includes foster care because we see that young people want adults to know we're not safe. Knowing someone means you have a relationship with them and in out-of-home care you were moved around maybe 42 times, as was my case. How was someone meant to get to know me? So they're not going to pick up on my side because they don't know me and that's why it's so important to have an open discussion because if you don't know a person you have to communicate with them. I like to use the word communication because, as we all know, not everyone can use their voice. I found that quite powerful because, you know, for Let's say the vast majority of Australians, we, we grew up in a home, perhaps single parent, but many double parent, and we live there with our siblings and we go to school. And to hear an 18-year-old talk around talk about moving 42 times mm. is, is quite an interesting look. And you can sort of see how abuse can slip through the cracks and you mm. can see how these people become forgotten and they don't have a voice to say, I've been abused, I need help to stop a situation. Yeah. And so also, and, and another thing came from Ben, who was 22, he said, yes, you are the adults, but unfortunately you don't know everything, mm. which I think is a big, 
a big message that um, people who hold power in these positions need to recognise so we can stop abuse happening in the future. Yeah, if there's one thing we've learnt from this uh, Royal Commission is that uh, poor responses to claims of sexual abuse are not limited to any religion or organisation mm. or group or charity. It, it seems to be almost universally poor how bad how bad the responses are and at every step and in every type of institution there always seems to be a protection of a brand instead of of the child concerned mm. and that's why i think it's so important to actually listen to what the young people have to say lauren your thoughts um i just feel concerned for those in foster care or out of home care because that's often where child abuse claims are made so i wonder who they can turn to and i hope that foster agencies for instance are getting this message as well i couldn't agree more mm. part three today i got along to huawei's innovation day down at uh down at circular key in sydney this week huawei is a chinese tech telco and hardware brand that uh, uh sort of has moved into australia they're sponsoring the Canberra Raiders, and they're part of the chinese push into uh western uh countries i have one of their phones you have james one of their phones yeah. and <laughs> I hope they're not spying on you because they have been accused of that uh, in some quarters. And as part of their their push towards credibility and mainstreamness, they they held a big symposium this week and they had a number of members of uh, academia and Australian business and they had even uh, had Greg Hunt uh, phone in a video message in support of this this, uh, talk. And I sat down and I had a chat with Glenn Whitewick and he's the uh, Deputy Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research at UTS. And we spoke about how industry and innovation, when they intersect, there, there is an issue with independence. And uh, I asked him uh, what the fear was and how, and how independence might be effective. And his response was, you have to manage that. And there have been some examples where people have been validly concerned with it, whether it's in the food industry or in pharmaceuticals. It's important that universities are able to maintain their independence and integrity so that when they do work, it can be peer reviewed. If you're working on technology with Huawei, for example, you're probably going to work in an area where you're going to be delivering something to them. And if they can turn it into their product, there will be issues of intellectual property that need to be managed. I really think that uh, Whitewick really sort of isolated a really big issue with the the way government is expecting industry to pick up more of the tab with funding research, is Mm. that if, if a company is funding a university to conduct studies and research, does that company then expect the resultant product to be delivered to them as a product that they can own the intellectual property of and, and mass market and make all the profits from? Or does the university retain some of it? Or should it be out there for the greater good? Uh, when, uh, when Jonas Salk invented the polio vaccine or isolated the polio vaccine, people thought that he was going to patent it and market it and make a fortune. He actually gave it over to society as a, as a societal benefit so that everyone could be vaccinated against polio essentially at cost. Mm. Uh, and I wonder about whether that, that era of altruism in research is being eroded away if we start asking companies like Huawei, pharmaceutical companies, mining companies, if we start sending them the invoice for academics. Mm. I'm interested to know your thoughts. Well, if you ask most universities, they'll, they'll tell you there's a contract which prevents this, but... Um, there's also research that came out of the University of Sydney, I believe, yesterday, which I covered a story on, that um, in the food industry, that their sponsored research may be spun in a beneficial way to the, to the industry, which, which, um, which funded the research. 
And that came from a researcher who was currently being monitored, monitored by Coca-Cola for this research. I was about to say, was that Pepsi presents sugar's not that bad for you? Yeah, the, basically. I mean, I remember reading uh, an, an Italian university put out a peer-reviewed article that said pastry is actually very good for you. And I thought, well, that's very convenient. Did you see the one that said we should eat cake for breakfast? No. That one's done the rounds of the internet as I, well. You're allowed to have cake for breakfast once a year. It's just when you have it for breakfast every day, it's it becomes a problem. It's a good breakfast food, supposedly. Some Italian yeah. university put that out. So. If you head to campusreview.com.au, you can read my full interview with Glenn Whitewick. And another point that we discussed was what role technology universities and universities in general have in bringing a whole of society along with us on the innovation superhighway. We saw at the last federal election in Australia, White Roy lost his seat. He was the Assistant Minister for Innovation. He was sort of the poster child in the government for startup and entrepreneurship and, and policy hacks. And I think the fact that he lost his seat and sort of that innovation idea has been sort of put on mute in the new Turnbull government shows that it, it is alienating for a lot of people. Uh, and the, 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 the tangent I'm going to draw here is that over in America this week, they're having the, well, next week, they're going to have their election. And the whole rise of Trump has sort of been, uh, he's been cushioned by people who feel let down by the startup culture and by innovation and by the main urban centres in America. I just wanted to get your thoughts from sort of like a, an academic or education perspective on the election coming up next week and, and what we can expect. Well, I just want this election to be over. Um. <laughs> it has been a bit like that. Yeah, um, my thoughts on, when it comes to education, I think it shows how people are ignoring what the educated people are saying because they've lost their trust in them. They've lost their trust in, in the institutions, which is which has led to the rise of Donald Trump and these these demagogues. You, see, you saw it in the Philippines with, with um, Rodrigo Duterte? Duterte. Duterte, thank you. And so my opinion is, is that it, it, it speaks to a divide in society where you have the haves and the have-nots, and the, the have-nots are, are, the, the have are going to someone who will say that they'll do all these things for them when maybe they will, maybe they won't. What I find interesting about that, and I agree with you, is that if you actually drill down and look at their policies, Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party platform have demonstrably better policies for the poor, the working poor, and the undereducated than the Donald Trump and the Republican Party that he's the nominee for. The, the Republican Party is the party that wants to strip away healthcare, that wants to strip away, make a university harder to go to if you're not rich. I find that an interesting cognitive dissonance. As I think I've said before in this podcast, it all comes down to education, and in the US specifically, the lack of education, which leads to misinformed opinions of the candidates and trust in them where perhaps that, that's a misplaced sense of trust. At, when, the, when the Republican primary campaign started uh, mid last year, I thought I could never read enough think pieces about Donald Trump and it happened I've, I'm absolutely sick of them so it did take 15 months but I that's it I just I, I'm with James I, I'm looking forward to the election on Tuesday the results will be coming in Wednesday in Australia my prediction is that Hillary Clinton will comfortably win I think she'll probably get around about 290 to 350 electoral college votes James your prediction god I hope she wins <laughs> Lauren I think she'll win but by a slim margin we're slim enough that Trump won't concede on the night. You never know with Trump. He'll probably say it's rigged. So, 
And now the sunshine is calling us. Thank you, Lauren, for being here for Talking Eds. Thank you. James, thanks very much. Thank you.